This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. So troubles in Toyland, yep, we knew that already, but perhaps the nail in the coffin, certainly for Toys R Us, officially going out of business. Let's talk about this. Sarah Halzak is retail columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section here at Bloomberg News. She joins us from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Sarah, nice to have you here with Selena and myself. So many retailers, we know it, having a really tough time, many because they've been, quote, Amazon. Your column and commentary, though, says how what happened to Toys R Us is a how not to guide for retail. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, Toys R Us just made a number of errors over the years that put it in this boat. And I think the main culprit of its troubles was this debt load that it had from a leveraged buyout in 2005. But when you look at its strategic initiatives, I think one clear place it dropped the ball was on e-commerce. Back in 2000, it decided to do a deal with Amazon where it essentially let Amazon run its e-commerce for it. Amazon was doing the fulfillment and the customer service, and that ended six years later. But by that point, Toys R Us was really behind on ramping up its e-commerce competencies. But nevertheless, this still represents a huge downfall for a retailer that still has a pretty big share of the toy market and seemed to be writing for an IPO only a few years ago. It, it's pretty dramatic, isn't this? It is pretty dramatic, and that's what's kind of crazy. It still commanded um, a really big share of the market, um, but unfortunately, its store environments just didn't really keep up with what consumers were wanting next. You know, this format, the sort of toy supermarket, if you will, uh, was something Charles Lazarus, its founder, came up with in 1957. And the trouble for this company is those stores don't look that much different than they did back then. And we're now in this environment where if retailers are, or shoppers are going to go to a store, they want something much more experiential. I think you can look at Best Buy, for example. This is a big box category killer that's doing really well right now because they've managed to revamp their in-store experience to revolve around a lot of expertise and high-touch service. Toys R Us didn't do that, and that's part of why they're in the boat that they're in. Sarah, I got to ask you, though, just to follow up on that. I remember FAO Schwartz here in the city, and that was an experience when you walked in the store. You could play on the big piano. You know, they had people (laughs) demonstrating stuff. So that was experiential, and yet they had their own troubles. They did, that's for sure. And I think it just goes to show, you know, how punishing this retail environment is in general right now. And if you look at other parts of the Toys R Us business, you see that showing up as well. So Babies R Us was actually the largest component of its domestic business, the baby business was, in terms of sales. And that's another area where they just got trampled. Uh, Programs like Amazon Subscribe and Save, where parents could just set it and forget it, have diapers show up at their doorstep without having to make a transaction each time, those kinds of things really... uh, uh, aid into their sales there, as did uh, revamped offerings from the likes of Target that undercut Babies R Us on price and sort of left it without a reason for being. I got to say, too, as having uh, now almost 15-year-old daughter, but when she was younger, and I was telling Selena this before we got started, uh, Sarah, is we didn't really go to Toys R Us to shop for toys. You know, we did a lot at Target or we did a lot online and like kind of cool kids catalogs. Um, so that's kind of what we were doing. It was like kind of a yeah. different way of shopping and we would do a lot online. 
Yeah, you and many other people. I think online, if you were in the market with uh, for convenience, online really offered that, right? You could shop in your jammies and with your glass of wine and have it show up on your doorstep. And if you wanted something more experiential, uh, perhaps a smaller boutique-like store, a mom-and-pop store, could provide that experience. And Toys R Us got stuck somewhere in the middle. And I'm in that sort of millennium generation, and I don't even remember ever going to a Toys R Us. <laughs> I think Walmart was more interesting when I was a youngster. Uh, now, what's also interesting is that in 2000, the company actually entered an agreement with Amazon to create a co-branded online store. What went wrong there? Yeah, it sort of just devolved into uh, dueling lawsuits. So uh, the, Toys R Us said that uh, Amazon wasn't fulfilling its end of the agreement, and Amazon sort of fired back and said the same thing. So ultimately, it was supposed to be a 10-year agreement from 2000 to 2010. It ended up being terminated in 2006. But as I was getting at earlier, there's all this lost time already there for Toys R Us in building out its own competencies in this area. And when you think about how fast the e-commerce lands is changing and how much ground Amazon gained between 2000 and 2006. Uh, Toys R Us really missed out on uh, building a strong network in that area. How much of this has to do with leadership that just didn't see how quickly the landscape was going to change? Leadership is probably a part of it. And, you know, it's interesting. Dave Brandon, the current CEO, was brought in because he has expertise in IPOs. So he uh, had been the CEO of Domino's Pizza, a company that was also private, and he steered it successfully towards an IPO. And you now hear about how Domino's is such a digital star. Uh, Well, a lot of those efforts began on his watch. And so uh, there was a lot of reason to believe that Dave Brandon could succeed, that, you know, he had uh, sort of done something similar before. Uh, But each retail case is different. And the environment is changing so fast, and this debt load was so big, he just wasn't able to wrangle it. So lessons learned here, Sarah? (laughs) I think the lessons learned are that you have to be investing in e-commerce and that you truly have to offer shoppers something distinct. And that can either be on price, right? That's what Amazon has done. They've really been a price and convenience play. Or that can be on experience. You can really turn your stores into a place to hang out um, and to spend an afternoon when people want to do something social and get out of the house. And if you're not doing either one of those things, if you're not winning on either price and convenience or experience, then you're kind of stuck in this sea of retail sameness. It's hard to stand out and it's hard to lure customers. Just quickly, is there anybody else that we need to be worried about uh, in terms of the retail space? It's going to just same thing. I know Claire's is having problems. Just got about yes. 10 seconds. I was going to say Claire's is the one yeah. I was going to bring up. They appear to be teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and also another one that has a huge debt load. Uh, it's a tough sector, that's for sure. Sarah Halzek, thank you so much. Retail columnist of Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section here at Bloomberg News. Sarah joining us uh, on the phone uh, and from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Fitting song. Our next guest is all about trying to keep all of us running. Joining us from Austin, Texas is Coleman Fung. He is the chief executive officer of Blue Goji, a virtual reality enabled treadmill is what this startup makes. And he's been demonstrating it at South by Southwest. I was actually just there the past few days. I flew in late last night. Unfortunately, I didn't make it to this infinity treadmill demonstration. But Coleman, I would love to hear from you to just walk us through how this works. Well, it's a, it's a unique design that we've been thinking about for a number of years. So one of the key features it has is that it has a security sensing bell that the user will strap on. 
So the bell not only will make you feel secure, and actually protecting you, but also sensing your body movement, which is really a key part of not only for gameplay in virtual reality world, but actually extremely beneficial for rehab as well. So that's how we came up with the idea. So I cover technology in San Francisco, and I've tried on a lot of VR headsets in my day, and a lot of them are heavy and clunky. So is this uncomfortable for people? Does it get really sweaty inside the headset? Uh, well, again, d depending on the gameplay and how vigorous you're actually going to be moving on the treadmill, yes, it could get sweaty. And again, uh, you can almost think of it as you can do the very high intensity but short bursts of exercise. So one of the games that we were demoing, in one to two minutes, you could be breathless. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So, okay, so tell me about the type of people that you guys are targeting with this, because this is a pretty expensive uh, workout piece of equipment, uh, $12,000 we're talking about. Is this for the rehab market? Is this for the home market? What are we talking well, about? Well, it will be uh, initially we're focusing much more on the high-end uh, gyms uh, as well as rehab facilities. So eventually we hope to bring it to the homes because I think that's where people can actually take a lot of these game breaks. And how big is this overall market for high-end gamified treadmills? Um, so I think that the whole market is still emerging in such an early stage. It's hard to say. I think you can see, especially in China as well as in the U.S., you see some of these VR arcades uh, coming up. So that could also be another market uh, for our treadmill. All right, wait, so I'm trying to understand, and I'm not totally a workout queen. I'm into my yoga, and I've been doing that for years, but I do have a Peloton at home, full disclosure. So I do like some of these ideas where you can kind of tap into either a real class or pull up a library and do a workout on my own and also have all these metrics that tell me how I'm doing. So tell me a little bit more about what this device will do. Well, this device will do more than that. It will actually allow you to have online gamified tournaments so you could be actually competing uh with friends and family so you mean you're, uh, you're running you're running and you're you're kind of racing against them is that what you mean yeah yeah so the games that we were demoing at south by you actually on this you know sort of make-believe uh bike that you can actually go up the hill so you will see the you will feel the resistance changing so unlike peloton you still have to like crank up the resistance yourself this is all actually done by the game. So is this also going to have a subscription services-based component to it? Like the Peloton, you have to pay for the hardware, but then every month on top of that, you have to pay to get the classes. So in our model, it will be somewhat similar because for us to keep the collection of games uh, keep coming. So we need to have incentive for the uh, third-party developers to keep coming up with innovative game that works really well with the treadmill. Yeah, so we're going to adopt a similar model for that. Can, you know what I'm curious about, though, is the financials. Tell me, you guys are early on in, this, in the game, it sounds like, um, but have you sold any? What's the potential market size here? Um, so I, I, I wish I, I know all the details, but uh, we are really still early. What we showed was the first prototype uh, we just finished. So we are not really ready until beginning of next year for the production run. So we still have a bit of time to actually come up with some estimate and number. Have you started searching for venture funding? 
yes, we we are okay for now. So we are not looking for venture funding at the moment. Now, unless at at Ursa we 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 have such tremendous interest from the gym market, yeah. then I may need to tap into the venture fund to scale the production. Well, so be- we'll see. We, that would be a good problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds like you're early in the, in the game here. Uh, Coleman Fung, Chief Executive Officer at Blue Goji. He's joining us uh, on the phone from Austin, Texas. talk a little bit about real estate and I you know before we got going I checked out REITs real estate investment trust they're down about seven percent this year but let's kind of dig into what's going on what kind of deals are being done Hassam Naji is CEO at Marcus and Millichap commercial real estate brokerage and investment services firm joining myself and Selena Wang here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio Hassam based in Calabasas California but in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday nice to have you here with us it's great to be here thanks tell us a little bit about your firm and the kind of deals that you typically do it's commercial right? Yes, our company is the largest uh, specialty firm uh, doing investment brokerage for predominantly private investors, high net worth individuals, small partnerships, and small fund managers. We have an institutional arm that does the larger transactions, but predominantly we cater to the uh, private clients throughout the United States what kind of deals and Canada. Are, what kind of deals are you doing and what kind of money is coming in that is being put to work? So the private client world, the private investor world, is the uh, largest segment of commercial real estate. Most people don't know that. Over 84% of transactions are under $10 million, mm. which is dominated by you know, passive investors, doctors, lawyers, teachers who happen to own some apartments, who happen to own, own a shopping center or a small office building. That's predominantly the ownership of commercial real estate in the United States. And that's why we specialize uh, in that segment. And uh, they have death, divorce, partnership breakups, all kinds of personal circumstances that result in, in uh, transactions. But it's also a very entrepreneurial, uh, you know, sort of a uh, driver behind investing in commercial real estate. And commercial real estate has been such a great wealth creation vehicle that uh, it's become more and more popular. Now, something that's dominating the headlines today is that Toys R Us stores are closing. That's going to leave a huge uh, vacancy of real estate on the market. What's going to be the impact of that? It's going to be some short-term pain, without a doubt. We've seen it before when Circuit City closed, many other retailers closed. We've heard about Sears closing stores. And retail is really in the midst of of a fundamental change. The old school, traditional retail, where it was just fill the store with inventory, merchandise, and uh, try to create some foot traffic has really changed because of the pressures of e-commerce. But what's misunderstood is that the new generation of brick-and-mortar retail, which is all about entertainment, which is all about creating a consumer experience, particularly restaurants, movie theaters, and other forms of entertainment are doing phenomenally well. So investors, a lot of our clients, are coming into the sector looking at distressed real estate, like a shopping center that would have a big vacancy from a Toys R Us, or back in the day, a Circuit City or a Barnes & Noble. Right, an and, anchor tenant of and sorts. And an anchor tenant of sorts. And think about how you can reposition that center with different tenant mix and attract people again. There's a lot of success stories. There's far more success stories well, in doing that than people know. First of all, I want a drinking game so that for every time we talk about retail, that it's all about the experience and not the merchandise, <laughs> that we can all take a little shot or so. But this is why I like talking to folks like you, because sure. you you get money from investors. You've got to put it to work. And I'm curious about the kind of deals. And let's just talk about retail. What Because there's still the majority of retail 
um, is done in brick and mortar. Even though there's so much done online, it's still brick and that mortar. That is correct. So what are the success stories within retail where you see money going in and more demand? Well, let's brick it by a couple of different categories. First, there's fast food restaurants, your McDonald's, your uh, you know Wendy's, Burger King, your drugstores like a CVS uh, or an auto parts store. Those are, are on long-term leases, and they're occupied by a single tenant, single retailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're called single-tenant net lease properties. They're very low in management requirements. You're basically investing in a coupon yield because you can look at the credit score of the tenant. You can It's a long-term lease. You don't have to worry about turnover. Those have been incredibly popular because of the aging baby boomers mm-hmm. wanting a coupon sort of a you know expected return. They've been very popular. If you look at neighborhood shopping centers where you have a grocery anchor, a drugstore, you do your daily convenience shopping, you have maybe some inline stores that have a dry cleaner, a beauty salon, and so on, those are doing very well because daily needs are still daily needs. People still shop and stop for their daily stuff. So, And then you have power centers where you have uh, Costco's or destination type of warehousing uh, or discount retail. Discount retail is doing phenomenally well. Ross stores, Marshalls. So these are actually growing tenants. They're actually opening stores because discount retailing is very popular among consumers as well as this sort of entertainment theme that you overheard or heard over and over again, I should say. <laughs> okay, take a drink. <laughs> yeah, okay, there we go. How is that also being offset by this other emerging trend of new retail? Now, Amazon is opening Amazon Go stores yes. in China. We have Alibaba buying up all sorts of yes. brick and mortar retail, right. Right. Warby Parker, et cetera, et cetera. It really proves that the brick-and-mortar uh, draw of, uh, of customers, I'm going to do it again. Yeah. If you have entertainment, if you have nearby restaurants, uh, actually works. That's why technology companies, that's why Amazon just acquired uh, Whole Foods not mm-hmm. too long ago. Because we know that that traffic and the physical penetration into communities is an important part of the whole chain. And one thing I will tell you is that restaurant sales in the United States have exceeded grocery sales for the first time ever about a little over a year ago. Really? Because people are eating out. That's why the fast food sector is doing great. That's why the entertainment notion and and restaurant notion of the reinvented malls is such an important part. It actually is supported by by the statistics. Is it the restaurant chains? Like it's who? it's restaurants in general across the board, right? That's fascinating. Um, so what are the most lucrative areas when it comes to real estate investments for you guys? I mean, uh, you can feel free to share returns because we always love to hear sure. about numbers here at Bloomberg. It's it's so it's so hard to do a broad brush, but commercial real estate today yields somewhere between four to six percent on average. And normally, an asset class this late of a of an expansion cycle right. um, is getting too much new supply. And or there's been too much over leveraging, meaning the the lenders that basically finance commercial real estate typically get really ahead of themselves and over lend. These have not happened in the Hmm. last five, six years. We have not over leveraged. We have not overbuilt. So the threat of an overbuilt sort of an implosion because there's too much building going on is not really an issue. Neither is blowing up loans in the next few years. Uh, So the, the sector is very, very healthy. Interesting. It sounds like there's more room to run. There uh, is. Come back. We'd love it to talk to you again. It would be my pleasure to do so. Hassam Naji, Chief Executive Officer at Marcus and Millichap, based in Calabasas, California, left the warm L.A. area uh, to come to our Bloomberg 1130 Studio in New York.
Well, the U.S. sanctioned a St. Petersburg troll farm. It's a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, two Russian intelligence services as well, and other Russian citizens and businesses indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller on charges of meddling with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Let's get a little bit more on this and what it really means. Nafisa Syed, uh, national security reporter at Bloomberg News in our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital, also from Washington, Mike Dorning, White House correspondent at Bloomberg News. Uh, Mike, let's start with you. The news. Um, tell us exactly what happened and the significance of it. Well, today the Treasury Department uh, issued a notice that they're levying financial sanctions against the individuals and entities that that uh, the special counsel indicted for interfering in the 2016 presidential election. And they also issued sanctions notice against some of the Russian intelligence agencies for involvement in that and in some other cyber attacks. Now, most of these people had already been sanctioned. Only a few of them weren't already sanctioned. So it's more a symbolic move than it is an actual move with real teeth. Right. And it's interesting, too. And I think from a a national security uh, perspective, Nafisa, I mean, is there some significance that you see as a result of this move? Or is it just more, you know, do you agree with Mike when, you know, just in terms of it being a symbolic move? Right. We've heard from analysts that this won't necessarily move the needle. But at the same time, you know, the Trump administration has faced a lot of criticism for not doing enough to respond to the 2016 Russia election meddling, especially as the president has kind of downplayed that as an issue. Uh, And so in some ways, even if it's symbolic, uh, it's being seen as perhaps the administration making some move publicly uh, even if, you know, these people won't be uh, prosecuted or anything like that. But the sanctions is uh, slapping that across to Russia saying, you know, uh, we won't tolerate this kind of behavior. But at the same time, uh, you know, we're hearing on the Hill from senators like Mark Warner and Angus King, uh, just I heard today, were saying, you know, this isn't going to be enough to deter future election meddling. Well, all right. So, I mean, is Russia <laughs> at this point then, uh, Nafisa, just kind of like, yeah, whatever? Well, yeah, that's what we're going to have to see. I mean, mm. we have to also see it in the context of what's happening in uh, in the United Kingdom, where they're uh, you know they're accusing Russia of using a nerve agent to kill a former Russian spy and his daughter. So coming off of that just this week, uh, and then you know Russia denying those accusations and saying they're going to you know retaliate, they're going to act against uh, the UK as well. And so you know this is the U.S. making another public stand, criticizing Russia, especially Russian intelligence agencies, which which is, you know, naming them is also very uh, important. Mike, what are you hearing in your coverage of the White House that you, when Russia comes up maybe as a topic within the administration, and, and in particular when it comes to the election meddling, what's, you know, does the president take this stuff seriously? Um, how does he take it? Well, the president um, has resisted uh, this for some time, and he's resisted mm-hmm. na- He's resisted the argument that any meddling by Russia had an impact, and for a long time he even resisted labeling Russia as as meddling in the in the election. Although now he concedes that point. Uh, obviously, from his standpoint, the bigger interest is not the national security interest; it's the it's the uh, implicit threat to his credibility of his own election. So he's very. Um, worried about anything that would taint uh, his victory. And obviously, if you have 
uh, a lot of attention to the idea that Russia meddled in the election to damage his opponent. That doesn't help his credibility there. Mm -hmm. Now, in Congress, there's, even among Republicans, they've been pushing for more action on this. There was bipartisan legislation passed last summer seeking stronger penalties, and the Republican Speaker of the House, uh, Paul Ryan, reacted to these sanctions today by saying they were long overdue, but he nonetheless appreciated them. Right. He put it out in a tweet, and he said that we must hold Russia accountable for its dangerous interference. Uh, Nafisa, we know when it comes to what's going on in the U.K. that Russian President uh, Putin is uh, preparing to retaliate against uh, the U.K. after Prime Minister uh, Theresa May threw out 23 diplomats over the poisoning of that former spy and uh, his daughter on British soil. Might we anticipate any kind of Russian retaliation here against the U.S.? Does this lead to a cyber war? Any any uh, thoughts on what you're hearing about that? Just got about 30 seconds here. Right. We are hearing that Putin, you know, may react uh, to what's happening in the UK. I think what's also buried in today's news that we need to uh, note is that the FBI and Homeland Security Department also put out a big alert saying that Russian hackers since at least March 2016 have been intruding on U.S. critical infrastructure from electric uh, power plants to water and aviation sectors. And so that's something I also am looking at in terms of whether Russia will respond to that as well, uh, and then whether we're going to see more attacks uh, coming up this year as we head into the midterms. Certainly complicated and certainly feels like some escalation here. Mike Dorning, thank you so much. White House correspondent at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us from Washington. Nafisa Syed, uh, national security reporter at Bloomberg News from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close. And I got to tell you, I've been dying to talk to him for about a week or so now. Ross Gerber is here. He's president and CEO at Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Santa Monica, California. So, Ross... This is the drive to the close, and I thought it was kind of okay to ask you about the Tesla vehicle that you are hoping to be driving sometime soon, because we recently wrote about you as one of the um, Tesla, what do we call them? Tesla stalkers. Yeah, stalker. (laughs) You've been waiting for this car, right? The Model 3? I'm still waiting. Yes, I am. And I love it. And now that I'm seeing more of them and more of them on the road, I'm getting more and more jealous. So I'm supposed to get my car next month. So... Stay tuned, because I'm about three months late, so we're, we're hoping that uh, they're up on their production numbers, and we think that they have caught up, actually, now. Well, that's interesting. How do you know that? Because this is what was interesting about this story, and, and to be fair, you guys um, own, what, more than $10 million in Tesla shares right now? Correct. Correct. And and what it's interesting is we talked about these Tesla stalkers, but everybody's been trying to get an idea because, you know, um, we're fascinated by Elon Musk. But when he comes out with, you know, product, production forecasts, they tend to get revised. They often get revised downward. Right. And so everybody's using, you know, different methods to try and get an idea about what his true production is about. So you say you're getting a little bit more upbeat about that. Why? What are you seeing? Well, you know, we have 
a system that actually Bloomberg has now copied. So your new tracker is basically <laughs> the system that I told you to set up. But but nevertheless, it, it's accurate for the most part. And it even caught the production pause um, that we both uh, your system and myself felt at the end of February. I was actually getting nervous because I was like, it seems like cars are slowing down. Like, what's up? Um, and then they, they put that in the in the SEC doc. But um, what we've seen since March has started is, a, is a, a, actually a very large increase in the amount of vehicles that we've spotted, have been told about, and VIN numbers. So we think during the pause they got their production line up to over um, a thousand. We think they're getting closer to two thousand a week now. And what we actually think is he'll probably get to twenty five hundred cars, which is what he promised. You know, the last minute of the last hour of the last day of the quarter. You know, right. And it's interesting. I mean, typical the- Elon. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but the VIN numbers is a great way of tracking it, right? It's not a perfect way because you kind of apply for VINs and batches, and it doesn't mean you necessarily release the car mm-hmm. right away. We actually prefer the, the sightings in the wild uh, you know, method that we use. Yeah. Because we're kind of in Tesla uh, country, you know. Right, California, um, yeah. Yeah, well, not just California, but Santa Monica is actually the hub of where a lot of Tesla happens because their main delivery center here is in Marina del Rey. And so we're able to really have a good take on what's going on because we, we literally have an employee who lives like down the street. And, you know, so we're tracking very closely how many cars we're citing and seeing, as well as through Facebook and other social media, um, people who are posting about getting their cars and things like that. So I think that's actually a little bit more accurate. That's pretty cool. What did you make of the report yesterday that was talking about um, the Model 3 and that things have been slowing down because of the need to rework parts that go into the vehicle? Yeah, you know, what I make of that is it's crap. You know, the bottom line is <laughs> That's a that, technical term, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a technical term that I use for fake news that is put out by short sellers who are about to lose their short, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And, um, you know, they've been desperate on this story. It always comes from CNBC, and it seems to always come, you know, when the stock starts to move to 350. And it's the same story. Now, when they released the Model S, they had the same problems. When they released the Model X, they had the same problems. They're building a highly complex computer car and, you know, trying to mass produce a highly complex computer car, which is much more complicated than a cell phone, let's say, you know, it has a certain amount of flaws when you first start this process. Now, that's why they've rolled it out kind of slower is they fix things as they go. But Tesla does a lot of that stuff when they're launching their products. Unfortunately, it's a byproduct of the very uh, t- the timelines that they have, the pressure that they're under. That being said, I think Ford recalled a million cars today. I've gone to opening of hotels on the first night, and I'm telling you, trying to get room service or anything else is a nightmare. <laughs> you know, so yeah. this is not uncommon, and, and investors have to think long term. I saw a new Model Three yesterday that was just gorgeous. And we were told it was a Model S owner who who traded down. You know, he was like, you know what, this car is new, it's sweet, it's different. you know, and they like it. Well, how many add-ons did he do? Because I know that the the Model 3 has been kind of touted as the car for the masses. But, you know, we did some pricing. If you, you really kind of do the things you're going to add on to it, it's not an inexpensive vehicle. Well, yes and no. You've got to consider a few things in your cost of driving. So first of all, you know, the one I'm looking to buy is, let's say, 55000 is the most expensive version. Yeah. Um, That's not so, mass market. 
No, but then you get a tax credit for now of seventy five hundred. Right. And then here's where it gets really interesting. So let's say it's fifty thousand dollar car after tax credit in your payments, let's say four, five, six hundred dollars a month. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're not paying for gas anymore. That's like two to you know, three hundred dollars a month for most people. And for a lot of people who commute like in LA, they drive an hour each way. So you're talking about gas costs of $5,000 a year. Right. So you've got to subtract that in your cost of ownership from, let's say, $300 a month for gas to $20 a month for gas. I mean, you know, it's a big difference. All right. I got to so, ask, ask you really quickly. Just got 15 wait, seconds. I one more thing. But, whoa, wait, wait. You also have depreciation. Uh, the car doesn't depreciate. You don't need to repair it all the time like a regular car. It's, it's an amazing uh, thing. They don't get old, really. You're not worried about the competition from Porsche, Jaguar, just really quickly? A few seconds? No, and those will be expensive cars anyways. Ah, love talking to you. And you haven't pared back your Tesla holdings? No, we've been adding to it on weakness. I mean, we're a little yeah. nervous here, but, yeah. but we think in the next three months this will all be worked out, and it's going to be a beautiful couple years for Tesla. Ross, uh, we got to run. Good talking with you. Ross Gerber over at Gerber Kawasaki on the phone from Santa Monica. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.